leaders, this is Kelly, and I want to welcome you to Connections, the podcast. This month, we are excited to welcome our MOPS friend and MOPS fan, Alexander Kirkendall. Alex is a trusted voice in mothering circles, and she speaks to women around the world about issues of parenting, faith, and identity. She's the co-host of the Open Door Sisterhood podcast, and she has authored books titled The Artist's Daughter, Loving My Actual Life, and her newest book called Loving My Actual Christmas. Alex lives in Denver with her husband, Derek, and their four daughters, who range in age from 15 to 6. So, Alex, thank you so much for taking some time and joining with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Alex, you bring with you a lot of MOPS experience. You know what MOPS leaders deal with on a daily basis in their leadership and their mothering. And I am looking forward to talking about contentment today, what it looks like in our lives as women, mothers, and leaders, how sometimes we can lose it and how we can find it again when we need to. I love the titles of your two most recent books, Loving My Actual Life and Loving My Actual Christmas. I feel like the attitude of relishing what's right in front of us doesn't always come naturally to us. So what led you to start experimenting with embracing what was right in front of you? Was there one event or a series of events that caused you to focus in on this attitude and start writing about it? Yes, uh, there were in both cases. Um, So loving my actual life, I did an experiment, a nine-month experiment a few years ago. It was about three years ago that I did it. And it was, um, you know, I had four kids. At that time, my oldest was in fifth grade and I had a toddler. And so everything in between, I was working part-time. I was taking kids to lots of different places. Um, I was trying to pay attention to my husband. I had a lot of really good things in my life that were happening, but life was happening so fast and I was so overly busy that I wasn't able to enjoy them. And so that was kind of the background hum of my day-to-day where I would wake up in the morning and I would already be stressed because there was more on my to-do list than was possible. And I already knew that I didn't get everything done from the day before. So I was always behind. I just felt behind in life. So that was kind of the background. And then um, something, a few really specific things happened. First, my daughter, my oldest daughter was in fifth grade and we started looking at middle schools and it hit me seven. We have seven years left with her at home. And I thought, if I'm going to make these years count, I need to be more intentional than I am right now. Right now, I'm just letting life happen and I'm reacting to it. But I don't want in seven years to regret that we'd missed some opportunities to be intentional, either about parenting her or just spending quality time with her and enjoying her being at home and having our family be what it is with four kids. Um, So that was kind of eye-opening to know that I could now count down and we were on this really fast slope towards the end with her. And the other um, was that my hu- my friend Heather's husband uh, collapsed one day at work that same year, and um, he died 10 days later and left her with three little kids at home. And he was my age, uh, and he was a healthy guy. It was completely unexpected. 
and they had a really great life. It looked really similar to ours, but her life changed in an instant. And I realized, you know, the obvious tomorrow is not promised, uh, but also that today really is good. And there are so many good things. I don't want to take advantage of them. I don't want to take them for granted. I really want to relish the gifts that God has given me today because I don't know what tomorrow will look like. I truly don't. And um, so I thought there was this, this urgency to love my life. So that was kind of the impetus for doing this nine-month experiment. But how? How does one go about loving their life a little more? And um, we can talk about some of the barriers that I found in contentment. And then for the Christmas book, I just had a few really hard years of Christmas, <laughs> you know, where you think, oh, Christmas is going to be magical. And I was so crazy, again, busy trying to make Christmas magical for everyone around me because we moms are the Christmas orchestrators in our families that at the end of the season, I was exhausted and resentful of the holiday. And I thought, this is not how it's supposed to go. There should be a better way. And so trying to find a better way was the impetus for that book. Oh, that pressure to make things magical. <laughs> that is a <laughs> lot of pressure for a mom. Now, those were some really difficult ways to learn some good lessons. And sometimes it's hard to name what's really bothering us. So what are some signs that indicate that someone is feeling discontent? Maybe just some normal signs that may cause us to take a step back and think, ooh, maybe that is the real problem here. Well, I think we can overall listen to our level of complaining. Um, you know, we just, we complain a lot. And some of us, it's a personality thing. We tend to look at the glass half empty rather than half full. And I probably have that tendency. I think we can just monitor that compared to what's normal for us. Like, are we doing this more than usual? So that's just like a real kind of light look. Um, but when I talked to moms and when I was writing the book, I kind of felt like there are three areas, three barriers that keep us from being content. And if we can identify that we're dealing with one of those, then I think we know, okay, here's something that is um, preventing me from loving today and the gifts God has given me today. And those three are comparison, fear, and boredom. And um, if we're feeling one of those three, I mean, comparison's not so much a feeling, it's more of an action, but if we recognize those things in our lives, then I think we, we can have some tools to attack them specifically so that we can be intentional about loving our lives. And that's what my experiment was about, was adding some intentionality in there. But I think there are some really concrete things that people can do to fight them. Comparison is often something that just happens in our own head, right? Like it's that, that feeling or even a thought that we have when we bump up against someone else doing something that we think is better than the way we do it or the way we have it. So um, something I like to encourage women to do is when they start having that feeling of um, discontentment with their own circumstances or their own life because it is being compared to somebody else's, is to call it out 
in a positive way to the other person. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're at MOPS and you have a friend who is having an incredibly stellar parenting moment. Her two-year-old is throwing a fit and you're remembering in that moment how you reacted to your two-year-old a few hours earlier at home and it wasn't very pretty. And she's being patient and loving and really handles it well. So your instinct could be, she's a better mom than I am, like right away, right? But you can acknowledge that when you, when you feel that or hear that in your head, acknowledge it and say, but I'm going to fight it and compliment her on how she's handling it and say, wow, you, you were really patient in that moment. And it's almost like creating muscle memory in a response. So I want to be the kind of woman who celebrates other women doing things well, rather than resenting them for doing them better than me. So the way to do that is to call it out in them. And it's not going to feel natural for me for a while. But just like when one of my daughters is learning a new soccer move and it's awkward at first, the more she practices it, the more it becomes second nature to her and she doesn't have to think about it. And so that's what I think about in celebrating other women is when I think, oh, wow, that looks really great on her. I could never pull off wearing that dress. Recognize you're having that thought and then fight it by, by complimenting her and saying, wow, that dress looks really great on you, that color, that cut, whatever. And you might still have that feeling. And it's, the goal isn't to be fake. The goal is for us to change our heart posture. And the way that we do that sometimes is by acting first and then the heart posture comes after. So as far as comparison goes, I think that's a really good um, way to actively fight it. Um, now, fear is interesting because as moms, we have real fears, real fears that are based in reality about um, our kids' safety, about the world and our children in it. But those fears can get out of control sometimes, right? Like, okay, that is possible, but is it likely? Maybe not. So you kind of have to rationalize those things. Um, so for example, I have some very dear friends whose son died in May from a brain tumor. So every time someone in my family has a headache, my initial instinct is to think brain tumor now, because it's a fear based in reality. Someone I know had these circumstances happen, but is it likely? No. So I can kind of have that rational thought process. But I think the bigger picture is that we are afraid that God is not going to care for us or that he's not going to care for our children. And the truth is, like my friends, sometimes the way we want him to care for us doesn't end up looking like the reality of how he does it. And so instead of investing our hopes and our expectations in the outcome of our prayers, we focus them in on who God is. Because who he is doesn't change. And so we can feel confident that he is with us, that he is trustworthy, that he is safe. We can, we can trust him in all of those things no matter the circumstances. So as far as contentment goes, there can be a lot of things that we don't like that are details to our lives that are happening around us. 
But if we trust who God is, that can be our steady force and keep us from letting the fears of the circumstances rule our lives and our decisions. Because those fears will likely still exist, but our trust in God can trump those and, and keep us safe. Kind of like I picture his wings over us while we're in that fear. That is such a beautiful picture. And it's a powerful concept. If we can just remind ourselves of that, it'll change how we face every day and every circumstance. Well, and, and then it gets to the how, right? Like, I want to trust God in that, but that's not my natural instinct. And so it's, again, it's that muscle memory. You do it and you remind yourself until it, until it becomes more natural. And I think for us as believers, we have some tools. Scripture, the more we are reading the truth of who God is, the more quickly we go to it in that moment of fear. And the more we're in prayer and in connection with him, the more we run to him when that fear pops up instead of to those thoughts that can start to get out of control. So it's that muscle memory of prayer and being in God's letter to us about who he is and about how the world works. And then... Um, as far as boredom goes, I think moms of preschoolers are the experts of living a life where today looks a lot like yesterday and tomorrow doesn't promise to be much different, right? So <laughs> it, it you can start to, to think, really, you want a cup of water again? Really, you want to read that story again? Um, and even if you aren't home with your kids all day, but you work outside the home, you can get in a rut of eating the same thing for lunch in the same cubicle, having the same conversations with the same people. Um, and it, life can start to feel mundane. And we're not really content with mundane. We're not wired that way as people. And so I think adding some creativity to our lives is the fight against boredom. So by creativity, I, I don't necessarily mean kind of the fine arts like music and painting, although it can be that, I think more of making. What do you do on a daily basis where you are making something? So it could be cooking. It could be a garden. It could be something that involves um, more traditional art. Um, but something where you are making and you are calling it good. Because if we know anything about... God, we know that he's creative. He made us. And if we know anything about us, we know it's that we're made in his image. So that means there's this wire of creativity that runs through each of us. And how that plays out is going to be unique. But when we tap into that, we're tapping into the way that God made us. So that just naturally is going to help with our contentment, help with our loving our actual lives because we're living a little more closely to the way that God made us. And then we know that God, after he created, he called it good. And in this Pinterest world that we live in, we are very fearful to call anything we make good, unless it's amazing, right? Yeah, really, <laughs> super good, pinnable good. And, 
And so I think to fight that and say, no, this is good. I made this in, I made this along with God because he was part of my creative process because he made me and he made me to be creative. And so this is my offering to him and to the world. And it may not feel like the tuna casserole is the most important offering to the world, but in that moment, if you try a new recipe or you set the table a new way for dinner and people are enjoying the richness of what you made, sit back and enjoy that. And I think that can, can help the regular everyday tasks that we do over and over and over become a little bit more interesting. It is so easy to get tied up in that idea that it has to be fancy or Instagram or Pinterest worthy rather than it just needs to be something that blesses my family or my neighbor or myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, you gave us some great tools to deal with comparison, fear, and boredom. Just great ideas that can help us embrace what's around us. Today, we're talking to leaders. And sometimes as a leader, we can struggle to love the team that we're on or, to be honest, uh, love the women that come into our group. So, How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that disappointment or frustration or that feeling that I'm just discouraged about the people that I'm working with? Well, you know, disappointment comes from unmet expectations. So I often think of myself as being, oh, real go with the flow. Whatever comes, you know, I'll just deal with it. I'm fine. And then I feel disappointment. And then I realize, oh, wait. I had some expectations there and they were somehow not being met. And so I'm feeling this feeling of discouragement. Um, So the first thing to do is to verbalize to yourself what your expectations were in that moment of disappointment to say, okay, so really what I was expecting was for her to do X, Y, Z, for her to respond in this way. She obviously didn't. So now I'm disappointed. And then you can evaluate those expectations. Was that realistic? Was that fair? Did she have some um, outside circumstance that is unusual for her, that made her um, react this way, and so I need to give her a break? Or is she really, um, did we establish some expectations as a team that she is not meeting? And so that gets to, Beyond verbalizing expectations for yourself is verbalizing expectations to other people. And so as a team, it's important to understand what do we expect? Do we expect everyone to be there half an hour early to help with setup? Or is that just the hospitality team? Do they know that we expect them to do that? Um, So you can look at it a little bit more objectively when you lay out the expectations as a group and not put an emotional attachment to them. Now, that's much easier said than done, I realize, because we take our jobs very seriously, and we often feel passionate about our job, and that's why we agreed to do it, because we believe it's such an important part of the MOPS ministry. So um, let's take, for example, creative activities. So someone's in charge of that. She loves it. It's her thing. She loves moms having the chance to do it because she sees how some of them really light up. And there are some people on her team who maybe don't value it the same way she does. To be able to, in her mind, say, okay, my expectation is that everyone would love it as much as me. And then evaluate, okay, that's probably unrealistic because we're all wired differently. 
However, I know that for some of the moms we serve, this really is important. So I'm going to keep it as my number one priority because that's my job, right, on the team. So then to be able to objectively verbalize, this is why I think it's important and try to to um, release it and let God be in charge <laughs> and say, this is why I think it's important. This is what I would expect and then get feedback from other people. Are my expectations realistic? And then they can, they can verbalize back to you. Yes, I can agree to be here half an hour to set up the craft table or no, that will be impossible for me to do most weeks because of my preschool drop-off. So then you're just trying to set yourself and your team up for success. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm talking about things that can be very heated and very emotional in a very matter of fact way. So I know that they don't play out in such a <laughs> um, simple and easy way because there's history involved in relationships and emotions and expectations, right? Um, but I think the more that we can be just really clear and recognize our own stuff, then the easier it is. And then we have to not hold what's not ours, which means I can give you my expectations. You've agreed to it. But then if you don't follow through, then I need to allow you to experience the natural consequence of that. And when I was a coordinator, this was by far the hardest thing for me to do as a leader on a team, because I didn't want our moms that were attending to experience the consequence of someone not following through. And yet as a fellow leader, she needed to see that if she didn't show up to do what she signed up for, it wasn't going to get done. And people might be disappointed and they might be disappointed in her. And so to not protect her, to let her experience it, but to set the table for grace around it. But I was a rescuer and that rescuing just intensified my disappointment in the unmet expectations. And then I would get resentful and angry. And that's just not fun. Nobody wants a coordinator who's resentful and angry. <laughs> Usually the attitude of the leader is contagious and it spills over to the team and even eventually over into the group. Uh, Sometimes we have to take a step back and look at the facts of the issue and try to take a little bit of the emotion out of it if we can. Now, as leaders, we get to go first in modeling things. We get to go first in modeling how to deal with disappointment or modeling how to share our expectations from the beginning. And I think we also get to model contentment. So how can we help others live a life that is characterized by contentment? Well, I think... Um, practicing gratitude and practicing gratitude publicly is helpful. So I try to think about what's helpful to the group and what's not helpful. <laughs> so it's helpful for people to hear you when you're up front or when you're running a, a committee meeting or when you're sitting at your discussion group table to say, um, you know, I'm really grateful for this person because she offers this, this, and this to the team. And to be genuine in the compliments that you're putting out. Like, this isn't about being fake. This is about really mining what you're grateful for in somebody else or in a situation. And to know that there is a place to work out some of the hard stuff, but not everybody needs to be involved in the details of that. And not everybody needs to hear your frustrations about that. 
So to have a few trusted people that you can go to who may be on your team or who may be supports for you off of your team um, so that you have a place to vent if you need to that is safe, that won't create a toxic environment for the group, um, where you can be heard in your disappointment, and maybe where you can get some constructive feedback from an objective person who's not right in the middle of it. Um, and then be public about what you're grateful for. And in order to be public for what you're grateful for, you have to know. And so I think practicing this idea of gratitude and really working at what do I love about this person or this situation or this team and write it down? It makes you verbalize, even if it's silently writing. It makes you put words to how God is blessing your group. So I think really it's two things. It's being public about what you're grateful for. And in order to do that, you need to know what you're grateful for. And then it's um, keeping the negative talk to an appropriate place. Those are all such great points that apply to our MOPS leadership, but they also apply in our communities and in our homes. So you've given us a lot of great things to think about. And I've been taking notes and I have a few things myself that I need to focus in on. Uh, I think it's true that living a life that is characterized by contentment sounds so good. And I can't think of too many people that would look at that and go, oh, no, I'm just really not interested in that. <laughs> but it doesn't always come naturally. So being intentional about it is the key. Now, I so appreciate you talking to us and encouraging us to embrace where we are right now in leadership and where we are in our homes as moms. And I just appreciate your time so much. And I just want anybody listening to know that if they want to hear more from you, they can visit your blog at alexandrakirkendall.com. They can find more tools, great blog posts, just great encouragement for their every day. Oh, well, thanks for having me. You know, I love a MOPS leader. So the more MOPS leaders, the better in my world. <laughs> thank you, Alex. And thank you for listening in today, leaders.